Welcome to Eczema Out Loud from the National Eczema Association. I'm Danny Morsehead. On today's episode of Eczema Out Loud, I'm joined by Rocky Roy, a registered dietitian who's here to talk to us about eczema and food. Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I'm Rocky Roy, a registered dietitian based out of Florida, but I see patients across the U.S. via telehealth as well. I specialize in food allergies, intolerances, disorders, and take a special interest in eczema since I am a eczema warrior myself. So I, I actually happened to become a dietitian through my own journey. It was never my intention growing up. I always loved food, but I felt like, you know, food didn't love me back because I didn't have an understanding that I do now. So I had multiple food allergies, oral allergy syndrome to most fruits, uh, hay fever, asthma. I had it all as they call it the atopic March. And my symptoms were so bad that my allergist in New York, when I was growing up, told my parents to move to warmer climate where there was less pollution. So I moved to Florida when I was 12. I was in remission for a good part of my teens. And then of course, lifestyle of college really hit me hard. So when I went to college, I thought I was going to be an allergist because I wanted to focus on food. Um, but I didn't realize they didn't really teach nutrition in medical school. Um, my, my brother's a doctor. So when he was studying for his boards in medical school and I was studying for my dietetics boards, like we, we had completely different curriculum. So it just happened to be something that I fell into. Um, but yeah, I, I realized very early on that I had to get a handle on just itching and like what was going on. I felt like sometimes my doctors were helping me on some of the topical aspects. I had an allergist, I had an ENT, every specialist you can think of, a dermatologist, but there were just some things that were going on with me. I always had IBS, um, just things weren't adding up. So I actually ended up going to a dietitian in my early 20s, and that actually did change the game for me, believe it or not. So um, I'm also of Indian descent. Growing up in an Indian household, we had doctors in the family, but we always had this emphasis for, you know, let's use some natural practices first and then go conventional if needed. So I always lived in both worlds of holistic health and conventional medicine, and it kind of brought me to where I am today. Wow, that is quite the story. <laughs> your life has been guided by your conditions from growing up and moving to wanting to be an allergist. And I'm curious, did you go to college in a cold place or did you stay in a warm climate? No, I, I stayed in Florida. Okay, so this is this is something I left out of my story. So when I was doing the pre-med track, I realized how much biochem and physics I needed to take. I was like, no, thanks. I think I'm just going to go pursue the arts because as a child, and I do find this with anyone who has eczema, there is some kind of creativity trait. Um, and I found when I was younger, anything in the performing arts was therapy for me. It really stopped my mind from itching because I was in that creative flow. So when I went to college in Florida, I realized two years in, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to do pre-med. So I pursued theater. And right after I graduated with um, in theater, I started to switch over to TV and film. And this is where my eczema was starting to really bother me because I was on camera and makeup was really not cutting it. 
So that's really the, the full story right there. <laughs> you were doing TV and film. You were thinking, oh man, I need to change something up here. Yeah. And I guess it was for vanity reasons, right? We don't really think we have a problem. Like we suppress our symptoms for so long. I lived with eczema going like, I was just a small patch in my face doing auditions. I was on camera and everything was shooting in HD. I was like, oh no, I have to really take care of this. And this is when, this is how I saw it professional help in this area. And then I went to a dietitian and the rest is history. I went back to school. I did grad school uh, down in Miami for nutrition. And I really started to focus on gut health and um, in, um, nutrition immunology. We couldn't find a more perfect person <laughs> to be joining me for this talk today on eczema and nutrition. This is great. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. So maybe I'll start off with my questions. We'll get right into it. Let's get into it. How does what we eat affect our immune system and our skin? So that is a great question. There is a correlation with our immune system in our gut. So about 60 to 80% of our immune system does rely in our gut. So it also wants to thrive on diverse diet. So a lot of times if we are limiting our diet, um, having overly processed foods in our, in our diet, that can definitely increase inflammation and it can lower our immune system, especially if you're not really digesting your food properly. I, I like to say, you know, we're not just what we eat. You are what you digest and absorb. So if you're not able to digest your food properly, right, you're also not absorbing the nutrients that you need. And if you're not absorbing nutrients, you're going to probably run into nutrient deficiencies. And that plays a huge role in our immune system. Mm -hmm. And how does what we eat affect our skin? Is it a direct correlation there? Or are there steps along the process? There's definitely still more research that's being done. But I do find um, there was actually an article that was recently published in Today's Dietitian. It was in the May 2021 issue on um, like food allergies, sensitivities, onset uh, adult food allergies. And they do mention skin in there. They mention uh, eczema. So basically what they hypothesize is the dual allergen exposure hypothesis. And it offers the explanation that in babies with eczema, when they have broken skin, food is sensitized through the skin first. So when exposure kind of happens in the gut, so when you're eating potential allergens at that time, when complementary feeding begins, the baby develops a tolerance to the food instead of a food allergy. So this dual allergen exposure is through the gut and the skin um, where it promotes tolerance. But when both don't occur, there can be either IgE or non-Ig uh, mediated allergies that develop. So that's mm -hmm. an interesting one. Can you do a quick explanation of IgE versus non-IgE mediated allergies? Sure. So IgE is pretty much your traditional allergy that you're going to find diagnosed by your allergist in an office. And that's going to be more immediate severe symptoms such as hives. Sometimes that can also be vomiting as well, extreme itchiness. It will probably develop fairly quickly within a few hours. And then non-IgE mediated uh, allergies, 
that's how we talk about it in the clinical world. Most people will probably hear about it in pop culture referenced as food sensitivities, but the clinical word word is non-IgE mediated allergies. So that is still an immune response. So your body does have some kind of an adverse reaction to particular food. However, it's not going to be testing positive on an IgE blood test. And there's probably some other mechanism involved in the immune system that is driving that issue. But that's still considered an allergy. Yes, but there's no conclusive test right now. And really the gold standard is an oral challenge. That's the gold standard. So there's no uh, test out there that you can ask for uh, non-IgE food mediated uh, testing. Mm. It's pretty difficult right now to do that. So research is still ongoing. Um, so in my work as a dietitian, I put on my Nancy Drew detective hat and that's where I go to town. Um, <laughs> I do need a good food log and food diary. And I basically help kind of see upon reintroduction of certain foods, if we can replicate a, some kind of a symptom or adverse reaction, if we can replicate that continuously, then we can probably say that you have uh, a reaction to that food. But I, I will say though, eczema and food reactions, there's a lot of nuances there. So if you don't have really good skin barrier support, it's going to be really hard to tell if you're having any kind of reaction to food. Going back to the dual allergen exposure hypothesis, if skin is broken and that protein comes in contact with your open skin rather than through the mouth, through your gut, basically your mouth is obviously part of your GI system. Your body's going to go like, hmm, this is not supposed to be here. It was supposed to come through the gut but it's coming through the skin. So it's on high alert, basically. Um, so I like to say we need to be working with also a dermatologist or an esthetician to make sure skin barrier is really, really good. Uh, skin barrier, the more closed it is, the less systemic immune abnormalities you will have. And that will really help us um, kind of weed out what really truly is a trigger for you. Um, and I see in my practice, you know, when skin is less broken or less quote unquote leaky skin, food uh, reactions actually decrease. So it kind of goes hand in hand. And we can protect that skin barrier in what kind of ways? So I always recommend that you go to a professional to audit your skincare. Now, okay, I will put on my patient hat now, I'll take off my dietitian hat. So as a patient, I've asked uh, my dermatologist in the past to audit my skincare. Um, and they would recommend certain products to me that I still found irritating, even though they were considered safe, but you know, everyone is so different and all of our needs are so nuanced that I just was not finding um, someone to give me the right skincare routine. And so I did go to an esthetician. Uh, so a medically trained esthetician, and now actually she's on my my team. So oh. she can do outside approach and I do the inside approach. So she does skincare audits. And um, I find if we can get some better products, that really does help with the skin barrier. If skin is so sensitive, um, like really, really red, I do find sometimes moisturizers, especially the occlusive ones, because I know those are supposed to protect the skin barrier. If the skin's really red, you have to really protect the skin and reduce the inflammation first 
Um, there are certain baths that can be taken that can reduce the inflammation and then just doing some wraps instead of coating on the skin with heavy emollients, at least in the beginning, so that that inflammation and irritation goes down. Because essentially, if you put on an occlusive agent on the skin, so sometimes it can be glycerin or some, some of the petrolatums, I find even as a patient, I get so hot and itchy. It's kind of like putting, it's kind of like putting like oil on top of a, um, a sunburn. It just doesn't feel great. You want something that's more soothing. What do you go for when you have a sunburn? Products that are like aloe vera based. So anything that's cooling and calming to the skin, because essentially if your skin is just producing a lot of heat, you're going to want to scratch it. And what do they say eczema is? It's the itch that rashes, right? And I get that we're trying to solve the skin barrier issue by putting um, an emollient on it. But if that emollient is making you irritated, then that's probably not the first course of action we want to go down. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of push and pull. So getting your skincare audited either by your dermatologist or a medically trained esthetician going to be a great start. And then you can start with protecting the skin barrier with more emollient rich products. And then um, we go from there. So let's go from there. Let's say somebody gets their skin audited, mm -hmm. and then they think maybe food is a factor in their eczema. So they come to you. What are you going to do to start off with them to help them out? So I always say we need to go with a whole plant based diet focus with high protein. Um, and if possible, make sure most of the meals are home cooked. I find most of my clients are probably using a lot of ready prepared items, which aren't terrible, but if they have too many added ingredients like dyes, or sometimes I do find my clients, they do have issues with yeast or some sulfites that are in preservatives that can definitely offset um, clients. So we want to do just kind of a nice whole food based diet. That's step one. And usually that can do wonders for someone who's just come from a, um, a sad diet, as they say, a standard American diet. So a lot of times that will actually help in um, just resolving 50% of symptoms within six weeks. So you said plant-based, high protein. Mm -hmm. Give us an example of a meal that would fall under these criteria. Sure. So I always say focus on protein, fat, and fiber at every single meal. So um, there's a little saying that I like to say, like PFF is your BFF. So protein can come in the form of animal products. So you can have, um, if you can have fish, I would say salmon. Uh, you can have chicken, turkey. So lean meats are really great options. If you're a vegetarian, I would say going for beans and lentils are going to be great protein rich options for you. If you don't have a soy allergy, I would say you could probably go for some kind of a soy based uh, patty, seitan or uh, tempeh. Sorry, tempeh is the one that has tofu in there. So that's great protein options. Um, minimum is going to be at least 20 grams of protein per meal. The more severe the skin um, presents, the higher the protein needs. So when I worked in the ICU and when I worked in the nursing homes, for example, our patients had pressure sores, so bed ulcers, and the skin was really, really broken down, red, irritated. And so we would have to usually increase protein needs for wound healing. And I see the same thing happen with clients with eczema. 
So if it's on the milder side, I would say 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. So whatever your weight is, you would have to convert to from pounds to kilograms. So that's just your weight divided by Mm 2.2. And then you multiply by like 1.2. On the more extreme end, so if your skin is more like moderate, you can go maybe 1.3, 1.4. But if you're skin's really severe, it can be like 1.5 to two grams, meaning one gram per pound in body weight, which is definitely a lot. Um, and that's probably where you would need a dietitian to help you meal plan to organize what, you know, that plate would look like, but a general rule of thumb is 20 grams of protein is going to be the size of your palm. So if right now you're looking at your hands, open up your palm, that's about 20 grams of protein. So I like using hands for protein, the palm, and then fists for fruits and vegetables. And so then you want to focus on fiber as well. So fiber is going to be really great for gut health. So like I said, you know, 60 to 80% of your immune systems in your gut, and you need to feed that, um, ecosystem. Basically, I say your gut is a garden and fiber is really the best way to do that. So fiber is going to come from fruits and vegetables. And I like to hit a target of at least five fistfuls of fruits and vegetables a day of all the different colors of the rainbow. I'm really big on sayings. So my education, my, my um, grad school program was very focused on nutrition education. So I taught children. And so we had little sayings like five a day, the colorway. Um, so what that means is you want to eat one color at least from each color of the rainbow. So um, white cup counts as well. So that's like cauliflower. That's a great cruciferous vegetable, really, really high in uh, fiber as well. So if you have trouble getting your kids to eat fruits and vegetables, a fun activity we would do is, you know, those colored bracelets um, that kids have like of the different rainbow. Sure. So you can have five bracelets, one of each color, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, uh, and purple. And every single time you eat one or your child eats like one color, you can switch it over from the red, from your like the right hand to the left hand. So by the end of the day, it's kind of like a game. How many colors did I collect of my, my bands? So that's an easy way to get kids to, you know, increase their intake by making it a fun game. I can foresee some incredibly competitive people getting competitive with themselves. (laughs) with moving the bracelets over every day. <laughs> Healthy competition. Yeah, I know. It's it's a great one for kids. And especially if they have multiple kids. Yeah, it's a good kind of way to like encourage each other. Um, and like sneaking in vegetables, even for adults, it's like it is hard. I feel like smoothies are the best way if it's like warmer months doing um sorry if it's colder months doing like soups are going to be a great option a child if they just absolutely won't have a soup or a smoothie you can blend things like spinach or cauliflower actually really finely pureed and stick it into like a sauce and they would never taste it Mm. or you can stick like a breezy popsicle and they will never taste it spinach (laughs) popsicle more tips (laughs) (laughs) more tips right there. Great. I want to talk a bit about inflammation. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can speak to the anti-inflammatory properties of food and how they might help our skin or not. I would say it's really the processed foods that I find to be more inflammatory. If you have foods that are more in their whole food form, 
it's going to be naturally anti-inflammatory. Now, of course, every person is individual, right? Um, there's always concern about, I mean, I know there's buzzwords everywhere about should you avoid nightshades, even though nightshades is a, you know, a vegetable, right? How can a vegetable be bad for me? Again, it comes down to patient history. And if a patient is interested in ruling certain foods out, we'll go that route. But I usually don't like to eliminate foods for more than six weeks. It takes about six weeks if we're following some kind of elimination protocol for inflammation to calm down. Um, and by that time, we should have a clear idea of what's going on. And then I like to introduce foods in, in a phased approach. So I wouldn't haphazardly introduce a lot of foods all at once. I would definitely want to phase um, new foods in like every three days in case there's a delayed reaction. Um, so yeah, I would say inflammatory foods are going to be tricky and individual to each person. I really don't feel like there's an one size fits all anti-inflammatory diet, just like there's like not a one size fits all lotion that works for everybody. Mm -hmm. So maybe the advice would be go back to the, the colored bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned meal planning. Can you tell us a little bit about what meal planning looks like? Should our meal schedules have a certain cadence to them? Uh, do you, what are your tips there? What's your, what's the rhyming word that you're giving to your kids? <laughs> Yeah. So I say eat every four to six hours. I know a lot of people are very interested to see if like, does fasting help? Is intermittent fasting something that I can do? Well, intermittent fasting is actually more so a tool for weight loss and it's not been studied or validated for eczema. Um, I do see them be extreme and I don't really recommend them in my practice. I really think it stresses out the body, stresses the adrenals. It's not what we're going for. If we are going for a nutrient dense diet, I think realistically we want to keep foods in and we probably should be eating every four to six hours. Of course, it just really depends on everybody. It's really individual. Some people do say they feel better um, for certain aspects if they do you know, eat at, after 12 p.m. But I find for the most part, it really helps with hunger hormone, stabilizing blood sugar. If you eat every four to six hours, a meal with protein always, always will help with mood and hangriness, right? If you're hungry and angry at the same time, a lot of um, patients come to me thinking that they have a sugar addiction and they think that they have no willpower over snacks. And then that's when they see flares happen. And I always do a diet review. I'm like, okay, well, what did you eat for breakfast? And they say, well, I don't really eat breakfast. I don't get hungry. Or they'll just say I had coffee. And I'm like, that really stresses your body out. It's also not great for your gut sometimes to do that either. So once we start really focusing on, you know, protein, fat, and fiber at breakfast, then it sets the mood and the rhythm for the rest of the day. And my, my patients do find they binge a lot less at night and they have a lot less sugar cravings. So it's not that you're broken. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't have a sugar addiction. Your body's really smart and just telling you, Hey, you didn't feed me for breakfast. So I'm going to make up for it at dinner time. Mm -hmm. Great. Many people with eczema have really dry skin. So I'm wondering if there are foods that we can incorporate in our diets that can affect the hydration of our skin. So I do find that not everyone's drinking enough water and it's not just water, but electrolytes really helps with cellular hydration and function. 
So I'm really big on making sure that you not just have water, but make sure there's electrolytes in your water. So if your water's filtered, you can always um, check like with your city uh, municipal and see like what's in your water. Otherwise you can get a water filtration system at home to, that preserves that. Um, you can also add things. So minerals are really, really important. Like I said, magnesium is just not in great supply in our food chain. Um, our soils are pretty depleted of minerals, especially magnesium, which helps with cellular hydration and function of muscle and over 400 different processes. So I say, if you need to get magnesium in your diet, you can definitely use kind of like a a magnesium supplement. There's powdered forms that you can add into your water. Potassium and magnesium work really well together as well. So natural potassium sources are going to be things like um, coconut water or aloe vera. So adding that into your water together and then a little bit of vitamin C will help with absorption. For most people, if drinking water is hard, vitamin C source would be like a squeeze of lemon or orange juice to flavor the water and you can go from there. Um, as far as foods go, there's a lot of kind of back and forth between, you know, if omega-3 foods are going to be really hydrating for the skin. And I have not found that necessarily to always be the case. I do feel like supplements probably need to be brought in and testing needs to be done. Um, but I do find in a lot of my patients, like that alone, supplementing alone with that is not necessarily enough for dry skin. Um, minerals, like I said, are just really important, but uh, topically like a dead sea salt bath has magnesium in there. And that actually I find to bring the most hydration back to the skin because salts are um, water loving. So it will also draw water to the skin. If you think if you've ever eaten out like a night out the next day you wake up and you're puffy, it's probably because you had high sodium in that meal. So it's kind of the same effect. You want water to basically be uh, brought to the upper um, surface layers. So that's what I would say when it comes to the dry skin. And also I do find probably vitamin A supplementation, although you, uh, you can overdo vitamin A supplementation. Um, it does help with dry skin in certain cases. I would probably defer pregnant women to speak with their doctor and their dietitian first because it can you can overdose on vitamin A. It can cause um, birth defects, so you just need to be careful there. So there is an upper limit for vitamin A. Safe is about ten thousand, um, and I think I think that's basically what I would I would say when it comes to dry skin. <laughs> okay, great. So hydrate. Uh... Make sure you're getting your minerals and potential mm -hmm. supplements. Yeah, vitamin C as well, liposomal vitamin C. I know I did not mention that. I, I do find that to be really great. Um, vitamin C is also a precursor to collagen. I guess I, I should now talk about collagen. Yeah. <laughs> now that I brought that up, because uh, that's such a buzzword and a big supplement topic. Yes. There's no such thing as vegan collagen by the way. So collagen is going to be found usually from tendons, ligaments, um, cartilage. It's usually um, from animal products and most likely it's derived from cow. So it will say bovine collagen peptides. So that, you know, is coming from um, a cow. Now, some people, of course, they're not okay with consuming animal products and they think, okay, well, I can just get a vegan collagen. Well, 
plants don't have cartilage, <laughs> right? Some of these marketing companies, what they do is they put vitamin C in there. And really you'll see on the label in like a small fine print, it says, you know, helps boost collagen production, but they label it as like a vegan collagen supplement. So if you turn it over, you'll probably see it's vitamin C. <laughs> mm-hmm. And does that have the same effectiveness as no i probably would say if you're gonna do some kind of a vitamin c um in your diet it's not really well absorbed in in the powder i probably would go for a liposomal which is like a liquid um vitamin c and go that route really working with a dietitian in this department is going to help um, with you navigating supplements okay great so my last question for you is, what is your favorite part of being a dietitian? Oh, I guess I, being the patient myself, if I find a way to kind of validate someone and their journey and their experience and feeling heard, because for a very long time, I didn't feel heard. And I think that's my biggest satisfaction in being a dietitian and, and also just, just seeing people who are so scared about food. So what ends up happening is most people end up going on the internet and then it's overwhelming and confusing. And then you start to have these rules against food. And I see it happen in my practice all the time. And, you know, I went through that myself. And so my whole goal as a dietitian is to give my patients the gift of food freedom wow it sounds like you're really helping these people out and getting a lot of um satisfaction from it because you're knowing that you were in that place if anything i will add and it's not about like eliminating a certain food or finding if a certain food is your trigger it's really ruling it out it's like okay it's not necessarily what i'm eating maybe it just was that moisturizer that was the problem or that you know that stressful event or that surgery, or that move, or going to college, right? So I think in the end, it's just peace of mind. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Having me is always a pleasure with Mia. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Eczema Out Loud. You can visit the National Eczema Association at www.nationaleczema.org. If you have feedback on this episode or you'd like to send in a suggestion for a future episode, you can email us at podcasts at We hope you'll join us next time.